0: This podcast is sponsored by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Take the Alliance with you this summer. Download the free Alliance app before you hit the road. Listen to this podcast and the other broadcasts. Read the websites and devotionals. Watch Alliance video on YouTube and share with your friends. Visit AllianceNet.org forward slash Alliance app for links available in the App Store and on Google Play. I'm Linus. Welcome to Kids Talk Church History, a -a one-of-a-kind podcast where kids investigate the history of the church. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. As he kept his promise, how has Jesus built and preserved his church against all odds? Come with us on a trip through history to find the answer, here on Kids Talk Church History.
1: Sometimes we tend to get the impression that reformers like Martin Luther were the first to protest against some teachings or traditions of the Church. But in reality, there were a lot of questioning voices before them. Many had protested against the corruption in the Church. Some questioned the Pope's claims to have full authority in every decision. And many teachings that are now believed without question in the Roman Catholic Church were still being discussed. Join us today as we discover some of those discussions. My name is Lucy, I'm 17, and I live in San Diego, California.
0: My name is Linus, I'm 13, and I live in San Diego, California. And
2: I am Mina, I'm 14, and I live in Kalamazoo, Michigan.
0: Now, I have to confess that
1: until now, I thought that many teachings and traditions of the Roman Catholic Church went back to the early church, or at least the early Middle Ages. I was surprised to learn that priests could actually legally marry until 1139, and that popes were officially declared infallible, meaning they could not be mistaken, in 1869. The teaching that Mary, the mother of Jesus, didn't actually die but was taken up to heaven became official in 1854. And in the ninth century, there was a big discussion about the meaning behind the Lord's Supper.
0: Roman Catholics believe that the bread and wine turn into the real body and blood of Christ. Is that correct? Yes, they believe that's
1: what happens when the priest raises them in mass. The church calls this transubstantiation, which means a change of substance.
2: If the church didn't always believe that, when did that teaching start? Well, this is one of many things that we can ask
1: our expert, but personally, I know that in the ninth century, this was quite a hot topic of discussion, especially between two monks, Radbertus and Retramnus. Radbertus thought that the bread and wine really turned into the body and blood of Jesus, the same body that hung on the cross and the same blood that was shed, he said, even if they still tasted like ordinary bread and wine.
2: And what about the other monk?
1: Well, Retramnus said that the bread and wine are signs that point to a reality. I remember our former pastor explaining that it's like a sign we find on the road. When we see an arrow with the name of a place, we don't stop by the arrow and say that we've arrived. It's just a sign that points to something else.
0: Yes, and when Jesus first introduced the Lord's Supper to his disciples, saying, this is my body and this is my blood, he was standing there with those elements in his body. There was a huge difference between his actual body and the bread and wine he was holding. Yes, and I believe that was one of the
1: objections that Retramnus put forward that uh, was repeated during the Reformation. I also remember reading about Lady Jane Grey, who was executed during the Reformation. She was around my age when she died. When a monk was sent to convince her to return to the Roman Catholic Church, she defended her beliefs about the Lord's Supper by saying, "Jesus said he was a do- was the door and the vine." Was he actually a door? Was he a vine? Centuries earlier, Retramnus had said a similar thing.
2: I've read that Retramnus' book was rarely mentioned until 1050 when a French archdeacon, Berengarius of Tours, defended it, but a church council ended up condemning both the book and Berengarius.
1: The Roman Catholic Church placed it on its list of forbidden books in 1559. But by then, Bertramus's name had been misspelled a lot. First, they called him Bertramus, and then Bertram.
0: I guess we're not the only ones to find those medieval names difficult. I'm wonderful. I wonder if they'll ever come back in
2: fashion. Maybe if someone uses them in a book that becomes popular. Lucy, what's another example of things that were brought up in the Reformation, but were already discussed in the Middle Ages?
1: Well, I believe this happened a little later, but there was this whole movement that didn't think that the Pope should have final authority on things. They thought things should be discussed in a council. There are actually lots of examples, and we'll see how many of them we can cover today. Because today we have with us an amazing expert to help us with these questions, uh, Dr. Scott Clark, Professor of Church History and Historical Theology at Westminster Seminary, California. Dr. Clark, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: I'm happy to be with you. I, I don't uh, expert. Well, that's disputed. Amazing. <laughs> that's that's a serious mistake. That need that needs to be corrected.
1: Well, I think we can safely say you know a bit more about this than us. So we have a, quite a few questions to ask you today. And uh, as you've heard earlier, that we discussed in the intro, we were surprised to find that so many things that were discussed in the Protestant Reformation had already been brought up many centuries before that. We started to talk a little about the meaning of the Lord's Supper and the discussion between Red Tramnus and Red Burtis. Can you tell us a little more about it, anything we may have missed?
3: Uh, well, I, um, first, the the, the uh, question of what was discussed and when, um, you know, that's a, a significant uh, point. The um, questions that came up in the Reformation, um, as you say, weren't entirely new, and a lot— that people uh, assume to be, you know, Roman Catholic uh, dogma that's always been taught, in fact, is um, relatively new. Um, the um, you know, as I tell my students, uh, you know, Rome says you know we're the ancient apostolic church, and yet uh, in the second century nobody's talking about Peter as pope, and certainly nobody in the first century and nobody in the third century. It, the idea that that uh, Peter was the first pope is an idea that develops gradually uh, over a, a period of centuries. Uh, so this isn't an unbroken truth that all Christians in all times and places uh, received and understood, certainly not the Eastern Church and not, uh, not for a very long time, and in, in some ways not ever. Um, uh, so, and, and as you uh, might know, there were only two sacraments, and since you guys have been reading about Red Burtus and Retramnus, uh, you'll know that they both agreed, as much as they disagreed about the nature of the Supper, in the ninth century, both of them agreed, well, there are only two sacraments. Uh, so that's, I think, really important. If people are thinking, you know, well, I need to connect to the most ancient apostolic Christian church, and uh, sometimes they think, well, then I'm, I have to become a Roman Catholic, or sometimes they think, well, I have to become uh, and join one of the Eastern churches. um my my response is uh, you know, sort of like uh John Wayne, well, hold on there, Pony soldier. I mean, he, he, uh, let's not go rushing into things um The Eastern Church is in some ways an eighth century, seventh and eighth century church. It's not a second century church, right? the uh, the icons uh, that are so central to Greek, and Eastern uh, theology, piety, and practice are completely unknown in the second century. Well, they're not unknown, they're opposed. There's a universal consensus in the ancient church against icons, um, that is, visible representations of Christ. And as I say, a lot of of what we take as uh, what we understand to be Roman Catholic theology, piety, and practice simply doesn't exist in the second and third centuries, or even in the fourth centuries in some ways. And in, in the case of the the five ecclesiastical sacraments—they weren't officially ratified until the 13th century, which is, you know, relatively late. We're in the high uh, medieval period at that point. So, it um, as far as um, Redbertus and Retramnus, uh, this is the first really serious argument about this. It uh, there probably are writers in the apostolic period who um, are uh, thinking along similar lines as a uh, Redbirdist, but uh, there are no uh, treatises, really, that I know of uh, laying out this idea that at the consecration during the uh, church service, right, which is called the Mass, uh, so during the Mass, during the, uh, at the consecration— the, the elements are transformed from being bread and wine into the literal body and blood of Christ. Um, there there are people who talk that way figuratively, uh, but there are very few people prior, relatively few people prior to Radbertus who laid out that whole um, doctrine, certainly at uh, you know, in the way and and in the detail that Red Burtis did. Uh, So these two treatises, both of which had the same name, which is sort of confusing, on the body and blood of Christ, um, uh, these two treatises are the first uh, of their kinds. And uh, so here we are in the ninth century, right? Uh, So 800 and some years, um, I think, uh, what, eight. 40s something. Actually, I should know this off the but um uh, uh middle of the middle of the ninth century uh is when these things are, are first printed. Oh here it is uh eight sorry eight thirty-one and eight thirty-three. Um and then and then again in eight forty-one. So that's a long time, right? After the second century.
1: So I was actually about to ask um whether radbertus was the first to come up with something of uh this nature but you already answered that question so i think we can go ahead (laughs) and move on to mina's question
2: roman catholic church adopted radbertus's teaching and made it official in 1215 do you know why they chose this teaching over the other
3: well you know i'm glad you guys asked me that question ahead of time so i had a chance to think about it because that (laughs) uh, that's a hard question to answer and uh my first response when I saw that question was to say, uh, "I don't know," <laughs> <laughs> but um, I guess that's the a lazy uh, answer. I think uh, the a better answer is to say that there's always been a temptation to identify the sign with the thing signified. So, what's signified is Christ and salvation for sinners. And um, and so early on in the history of the church, relatively early, not from the very beginning, but uh, you in the fourth century, uh, certainly we see, and I think probably before that, but uh, we we see that uh, people saying that baptism necessarily by its use, by its administration, necessarily confers what it signifies, that is a washing of sins and, and salvation. And um, that be- becomes a widely held view in the ancient church. It wasn't necessarily held everywhere in all times and all places. As You know, sometimes people um, intimate that all of the ancient church held baptismal regeneration, and that's probably not uh, true. I have not seen that. And it's also the case that the word regeneration meant different things at different times, and so you have to pay attention to that. So, there is that precedent, and the reason that people did that is that there is, as I say, a temptation to turn the sign into the thing, right? And and that's what I think happened in the case of baptism, and and that's what happened in the case of of the Lord's Supper. They had a choice between the supper being a, a sign of of salvation and becoming, in a sense, salvation itself, and and like and and. Uh, as in the case of baptism, uh, they chose to do it also uh, with the Lord's supper. Um, so that's um, that's my my yeah. best answer. And you you still see that too uh, today. People are, are constantly being tempted uh, to to turn the sign into the thing. It's a I, I won't say it's an irresistible temptation, but it, it's a very strong temptation. Mm-hmm.
1: Now I've also heard that in the Middle Ages, the church started to see grace as a kind of substance to be infused and that it was actually infused through the sacraments. Do you think you could um explain that a little better for our listeners?
3: Uh, I think that's right. So um there in the in the early Christian, tradition after the apostles. And again, as a, you know, reformed Protestant, I would say that there's no teaching in Scripture uh, to that effect. And if you look at the way people tend to talk about grace in the uh, early um, uh, post-apostolic period, uh, there certainly is talk about grace, but there isn't much talk that gives you the impression that grace is a kind of thing, a kind of medicine, Uh, But gradually, through the Middle Ages, people began to think uh, in more realistic categories. Uh, Why that is is interesting. Um, uh, One uh, source, one uh, source of influence to which uh, people sometimes point is Aristotle. Um, Now, the church's relationship to Aristotle is complicated. Everybody read Aristotle, at least at at a certain point. And we learned a lot from Aristotle. We learned a lot about how to make arguments and and how to understand the natural world and all kinds of things that we didn't repudiate. Uh, but there was also this uh, movement to—and it's called realism—where where, uh, we came to think gradually over a long period of time that, for example, God could only say about us— That we are, for example, justified or righteous if we are ourselves inherently, intrinsically righteous, and um, and so that so again that's called realism. uh, God can only say what he says because we are what we are. We have to be intrinsically righteous, and then we we lost our sense of sin. You know, Augustine had argued with Pelagius in the uh, late fourth and early fifth centuries that. Uh, no, we're really sinful, and we're dead in sins and trespasses, and, and we need uh, sovereign grace to raise us to new life and give us true faith and to save us. And, and Plagius rejected all that. He said, well, no, we're not that all that uh, sinful. In fact, we're not born sinful at all. We only become sinners when we sin. Uh, so he had that, that big argument. Um, and, uh, you know, um, gradually... Um, uh, to sort of make that argument against Pelagius, we began to talk uh, about uh, grace as a kind of medicine, as a kind of thing, not just as divine favor, but as a kind of substance. And um, one way this caught on was that uh, the people, there developed a sort of middle way between Pelagius and, and Augustine, and people said, well, yeah, we're sinful, by birth, but we're uh, we're not that sinful. We're we're wounded. We're sick, and they used the uh, the parable of the uh, of the good Samaritan and, and the man lying on the side of the road isn't dead. Uh, he's wounded, and he needs medicine. And so they began to theologians began regularly to talk about grace as as this medicine, mm-hmm. as this salve. Uh, you know, if you go out and if you're playing outside and you fall. Um, and you get a cut. Uh, you know, what does your mom do? Well, you come in and she washes it off, and then what do you put on it? Uh, some kind of salve, right? Antibacterial salve or something. Well, that's that's how they came to think about grace as a kind of medicine that's applied by the church. and um and when you uh, receive baptism, you get this medicine. And when you receive the Lord's Supper, you're uh, you're ingesting a kind of medicine. And that's why, that's one of the reasons why the church was tempted to add to the two sacraments that Jesus instituted. So there'd be more opportunities to receive this medicine. So that's basically how it happened. And again, as I say, it took a long time for that to happen, but that's more or less what happened.
1: So was retramnus involved? Like, did this discussion about grace as a medicine, did it come up uh, around Retraemnus' time or was it Uh, later on that it started happening?
3: That's a good question. Um, Yes, the idea is beginning to uh, be formed, but it really won't be fully formed until after Red Burtis and Retramnus. So when I think about grace as medicine, or when I think about theologians teaching that grace is um, uh, medicine, uh, you, I think of it as an idea that really catches on in the 12th and 13th centuries, and particularly in the 13th century. It, it's, it, it probably is before then, um, but I'm not sure they're quite there in the 9th century. The debate uh, that Red and Red are having is whether the Supper is a figure, a picture, an illustration— A way of talking about something, or whether at consecration, so when the minister prays over the elements, whether they really become literally, or as they said in this debate in the ninth century, in truth. So that was how they framed the debate. Is it a figure, or is it literally the thing? That's what they were arguing about.
2: We mentioned other things that were discussed during the Middle Ages and are brought back again during the Reformation, like the authority of the Pope. Can you tell us more about that? Well
3: the idea of the papacy developed very gradually as I as I said earlier uh, nobody's talking about peter as pope in the 2nd century and i think that's very very important uh, there just isn't any evidence of that um in fact uh, when you look at some of the very earliest post apostolic writings, uh, for example, the epistles of Ignatius of Antioch, who's writing to the various churches who came out to visit him as he's on his way to, to Rome, presumably to be martyred, uh, he mentions three offices. Uh, the the uh, episkopos, and that gets translated bishop, I think that's a little misleading because when we hear bishop, we think of a guy with a tall hat and a shepherd's crook and and a lot of, you know, administrative authority over a whole group of churches. And that's not really what he means. He just means pastor. And then he mentions elders and he mentions deacons. And he certainly tells people, follow your pastor. But he also talks about the elders and deacons and the ministers as if they each had their own authority. And there's a kind of correlation of their authority. In other words, he doesn't necessarily make them uh, a ladder or a hierarchy with one on the top and the others beneath. Uh, But gradually, uh, particularly in the fourth century, so in the early fourth century, the church was made legal by Constantine. It wasn't made the state church yet in uh, 313, but it was made a legal religion and Um, Sunday was recognized as a holiday. You know, Christians now have some status in the empire, and they're no longer being persecuted, or at least not supposed to be persecuted. They got their property back and that sort of thing. But in AD 380, Theodosius I made Christianity the religion of the empire, and that really changed things. And through the 4th century, so the 4th century, in my view, is really decisive, the church begins increasingly to look outwardly more and more like the Roman government. And if you want to know where and why do, in some traditions, ministers wear the kinds of uh, clothing they do when they're conducting services, a lot of that clothing comes from the Roman Empire. And, um, and so we were imitating the culture around us. And uh, the government is basically an episcopacy. There's one guy on the top, and there are people who work for him underneath him, whose authority derives from him. And the church began to model that form of government. Um, So that took, uh, again, a few hundred years for that idea really to catch on. You you see it in the middle of the third century. Uh, There's increasing emphasis for understandable reasons in the middle of the of the third century, the church was being persecuted terribly uh, all through the third century, and particularly in the middle and towards the end of the third century. And so Cyprian in North Africa said, follow the episkopos. And again, we translate that bishop, but he really means senior pastor. But he, but the the episkopos is uh, increasingly given more and more authority, as I say, for understandable reasons. But by the time you get to the fourth century, um, the Episcopal is becoming more and more powerful. And, and some of the Roman uh, senior pastors or bishops were beginning to claim for themselves that they were the father of all of the other churches. And and uh, now when they asserted that the churches of North Africa said, uh, uh, no, <laughs> we don't accept that. Uh, we disagree. We have a right to disagree with you. Uh, we have our own authority from Christ. So it, it didn't, it wasn't accepted right away, but gradually it came to be the case, especially by the time, again, you get to the ninth century, uh, the the Roman uh, bishop is, you know, more and more influential, more and more uh, uh, powerful, and his authority continues to grow right into the 14th and 15th centuries, where it hits its high point and then begins to decline after that.
2: All these things were discussed during the Middle Ages but didn't cause the drastic break that happened during the Reformation. What was different at that time of the Reformation?
3: Well, there were people uh, before the Reformation who objected to the authority of the Pope. Uh, in the 14th century, William of Ockham complained about uh, a particular Pope, John the 22nd, and uh, called him Antichrist. And other people objected. There was a whole movement uh, before the Reformation called conciliator- uh, Conciliarism. Uh, the Conciliarists said, then everybody thought that, of course, authority comes from God, but they were arguing about. Well, what happens to that authority when it comes from God? You know, uh, authority is who gets to say, who gets to make the rules. As children, we listen to our parents because we say that and we understand that God has given uh, authority to our parents to to make rules for us. Well, so authority comes from God, and then what happens? Uh, the papalists said it it comes through the pope and from the pope to councils and the conciliarists said no it comes from god and it comes through the council and from the council it goes to the pope well that was a big argument uh before the reformation eventually the pope won not really by persuading anybody um but uh he sort of uh, outfoxed the conciliarists so there are a lot of these uh, debates that that were um that came up in the Reformation that, that uh, had been argued uh, uh, before the Reformation. But in the Reformation, uh, you know, when Luther begins challenging the papacy uh, and he begins challenging the consensus of the church on how we are right with God, uh, you know, and uh, challenging the authority of the church to impose sacraments, five sacraments uh, that the Christ had not imposed and, and those sorts of things— uh, the the Roman Church reacted by saying, "Well, all right, the Pope's our guy, um, and that Christ is instituted, and um, and you know everybody fall in line, or you're condemned." Uh, they, you know, that's a very short version of the Council of Trent. <laughs> so I've had a highly simplified version of the Council of Trent, but uh, that's kind of what happened. Uh, the Rome reacted uh, to all of that, and and so. Um, There's, uh, uh, but I think, you know, I think it's important to know that some of the arguments that were taking place in the Reformation were arguments uh, that we had had before the Reformation. Now, as far as I know, nobody was saying before the Reformation that we are justified with God by uh, divine favor alone through faith, resting, receiving, trusting alone. Uh, That's a real breakthrough. And uh, there's some other things that happened in the Reformation, distinguishing between law and gospel. Uh, that was not being done before the Reformation, but maybe Augustine, I think, does it um, in one of his works. But um, so there were some new things in the Reformation, but a number of the things that were argued were, were not new. And um, and the Protestants said, for example, even the, the debate between Radbertus and Retramnus, um, you know, in a, in a way you could say the Protestants sided with, uh, at least some of the Protestants sided with Retramnus to say the Supper is a symbol. And um, although the Lutherans, uh, interestingly, they reprinted Radbertus and seemed in some ways to agree with Radbertus. I don't think they did really, but um, but it's interesting that they reprinted him. And uh, some of the Reformed reprinted uh, Retramnus. And I do think they basically agreed with Retramnus.
0: So unfortunately, we do have to close soon. But before we do, we have a couple of other questions we ask all of our guests. How did you become interested in church history? And if you could meet anyone from medieval history, who would it be?
3: Oh, my. um, You know, I'm not exactly sure how it happened. Uh, I had some good history teachers when I was in in, in university, and I, I did a lot of reading. when I was in university, and then I had a very good church history professor when I was in seminary, Bob Godfrey, and and he he made church history uh, interesting and even fun, and uh, that really stimulated my interest, and so I, I kept reading it. So I guessed something like that. I was always interested in history. Always read lots of biographies. And so I went from sports biographies and military biographies and crime biographies to uh, uh, sort of church history biographies in some ways. If there's a medieval figure I'd like to meet, hmm, there's so many interesting medieval figures. Maybe Thomas Aquinas. I think uh, I I would like to—I have some questions I'd like to ask Thomas. So that that would be fun, or at least I'd like to hear him lecture. And um, so, but I, you know, that's just off the top of my head. There are lots and lots of interesting medieval figures. It it would be kind of interesting to meet Peter the Hermit. Uh, I want to know, why did you go uh, so early uh, to Constantinople? And what did you think was going to happen? Um, So that's a, those are a couple of names that come to mind.
1: Well, Dr. Clark, after all those questions, we are so thankful that you decided to spend this time with us to share your knowledge and wisdom about this topic, and we hope that you can join us again for a future podcast. Uh, But now, dear listeners, remember, you have an opportunity to win a copy of Simonetta Carr's book, Church History, which includes information about all this we talked about and more. You can enter the drawing by emailing your questions or comments to questions at History.org or by visiting our website, kidstalkchurchhistory.org, and sign up for updates. On the website, you can also find past episodes, special news, recommended readings, and even more. Be sure to tell your friends where they can find us. In partnership with the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, and on behalf of my co-hosts, Linus and Mina, my name is Lucy, and thank you for listening to Kids Talk Church History.